Can you hear me out there, Laura? I can hear you hard. Okay, good. Okay, another Monday, we're still here. That's a good start. Hopefully, most of you recognize the picture today. If you don't, we are all in serious trouble. We don't know where we are. Um, if you go sit in Sylvan Green every once in a while, take your lunch, go sit on one of the concrete benches up in the theater, you get a really nice shot of the Campanile. It's a good place for lunch, and usually there's not a lot of people around to bother you. So, I need to find the screen. What slide were we on? Does anyone have a memory of this? I think we talked about nomenclature. I think it was the sources of fatty acids in milk. Just at the sources of fatty acids. Okay. I was thinking that might be where we were, but you know, when, when one has a weekend and doesn't pay attention to this, except to review all of it, and I don't remember which slide I left off on, I, I have a little challenge there. Okay. So we've talked about nomenclature of, of lipids. Our beginning conversation today is where do we get those individual fatty acid side chains from? Where are they sourced as we look at the beginning? Okay, so the short chains, those fatty acids that are between four and 14 carbons long are synthesized within the mammary cells. So they're constructed, they're developed within the mammary system themselves. That's a relatively constant thing. The medium chain, those 16 carbon length and the 16 carbon length with one unsaturated bond are of mixed origin. Some are synthesized within the mammary gland and some are being brought straight from the bloodstream, preformed as existed. Those preformed that are already in the bloodstream are impacted by how the rumen microflora deal with whatever the diet was. The diet of the animal is going to impact how those microflora behave and then what they're going to put into the bloodstream. So we're going to see those medium chains, those 16 and 16 ones, can either be manufactured by the mammary glands themselves or be strictly brought in from the bloodstream based on the rumen microflora. The very large fatty acids, the long chains, the C18, 18, 1, 18, 2, 18, 3s, and bigger, 
are preformed. They come to the milk from what the rumen microflora developed, and they come out of the bloodstream into the mammary tissue and then are transferred through instead of being synthesized within the mammary tissue. So there's three choices of really where those fatty acids are coming from. Either mammary tissue only, bloodstream only, or potentially a combination thereof. So the medium chains are in that combination thereof zone, okay? So that's where we got, we're getting all these fatty acids from. The rumen microflora have huge impacts. I'm not going to steal Dr. Ovai's thunder if you happen to be a dairy production student also in physiology of lactation. I'm just going to briefly introduce that here. The microflora impact the building blocks, the small parts that we're going to be putting together to create these larger molecules. The pH of that rumen, the overall balance of what's in the diet, the balance of what the microflora themselves are as far as different organisms will impact then how those building blocks are synthesized and what is available in the bloodstream when it gets to the mammary tissue to become part of the fatty acids in the milk. Does that make sense? Ethan. Have any companies looked at incentivizing feeding specific rations to target specific fatty acid profiles? It has been done, especially when we're starting to look at the texture, whether we're looking at brittle milk fat or very soft milk fat, spreadability and things like butter. And one natural way to change the spreadability in butter is to go back to what you're feeding the livestock. So yes, there have been some groups that have done that, but to a large extent, no. It's been fairly minimal but it can be done. Remembering one thing here, not all mammals are ruminants, okay? Cows are ruminants. Pigs are mammals, they're monogastric. Humans are mammals, we're monogastric. We're gonna have different influences on that fat composition because of how the rumen influences it. If we don't have a rumen, if we don't have that ability for those microflora to take in those forages, those cellulosic materials, et cetera, and break them down and restructure them into lipids, we're going to get different profiles in our finished product. So the milk obtained from a ruminant is relatively unique in that it has that 
excessively higher proportion of the shorter chain fatty acids, okay? The presence of, of multiple levels of the short chain fatty acids impacts physical characteristics of the milk and the finished products that we make from the milk and it also impacts sensory. If you remember last Friday, we showed the states of some of those saturated fatty acids, whether they were liquid or solid based on the temperature, okay? So if it takes more energy to make them into liquid form, if it has to be at higher temperature, it's gonna be harder to volatilize them off. But if they're liquid already, and it doesn't take a lot of additional energy or heat to do that, as they volatilize, you'll be able to pick up that aroma more readily. Well, those short chain fatty acids are already liquid at body temperature, at room temperature. So they're gonna create a lot more aroma and sensory perception. The very long chain and the medium chain, especially the medium chain saturated, the C14, C16s, your nose isn't gonna be able to pick up any difference. They're not going to be very volatile. But the short chain, which is impacted by the rumen and the diet, creates that aroma, that characteristic. When you put butter in a pan versus putting margarine in a pan, your nose is gonna be able to tell a difference because of the fatty acid profile that's being volatilized. The aroma of melting butter is different than the aroma of several other spreads that you might choose to put in there. Even if you're cooking with an oil, cooking with corn oil versus olive oil, the aroma upon heating is gonna be different than the aroma upon heating of butter because of that sensory property of those short chain fatty acids. Does that seem like it? Make the connection there? And those short chains are coming from that rumen influence. Fat can be incredibly complex. When you think about the fact we're starting with the glycerol backbone, that simple three carbon structure that has three attachment points. But when you start to do the math at the number of fatty acid choices we have, times the number of attachment sites, we actually get to a number of approximately 10 to the fifth different possible arrangements of the fatty acids that could be produced by the rumen, the rumen or within the mammary tissue and put into an individual triglyceride. That's a lot of variety. 10 to the fifth is a really huge variant, which gives us all of those possible combinations. We can control some of them. If we change the diet, if we change the level of forage, the level of saturated fats 
in the diet, the amount of energy in the diet, all sorts of things, we can impact the fatty acids that are produced. But 10 to the fifth, that's a lot of variability. And we're trying to discuss something in a, in a larger context. So the umbrella is covering an awful lot of things. Does that make sense? I think that might be the last slide in this set. Is that true? Okay. Ethan. To Friday, okay. Slide 10. Is that this one? Linoleic. Yes. So, uh, in the latter part of the 1990s, early 2000s, there was a huge amount of work being done on feeding to enhance conjugated linoleic acid. So they were feeding different oil sources to give a feedstock going in, along with changing the ration. They found that feeding a fish oil compound at about 2% of the ration maximized the production of conjugated linoleic acid. If you went above that, yes, you got more CLA, but you started to have milk that smelled like fish. And that was not where we were wanting to go. But the fish oil worked better than the soybean oil, worked better than the canola oil, the safflower oil. They, they tried a whole bunch of things to adjust energy and total fatty acid profile on the diet going into the rumen, found fish oil to be the best, but if they pushed it too far, they also induced a flavor profile in the milk that, that wasn't helpful. So that research work is out there. Uh, a lot of it was done here, right around the turn of the millennium. So, Ethan. I do not know that anyone picked up and started trying to specifically make that. The research is there, whether it was picked up. I don't think that it was actually patented as a method. So you could probably work your way sort of around it by reading the journal articles and do it without anyone specifically knowing that you undertook that. Tendency is, in a lot of cases, university-level research does not go to a patenting process, so then it becomes public domain, and whoever is smart enough to read the research articles can go with it. Universities have started to patent a little more often because they'd like a little return revenue for their ideas. But it's not nearly as common in university setting as it would be in industry setting. But yes, there has been some possibility.
Any other questions on this set of slides before I move on to the next? Come on, Nose. Well, there's a bunch of people out there. Look at that. Okay, this is the third set. They're, they're labeled as number three if you're following as you're loading down on D2L. I did make a couple of modifications to this. I put in two more slides this morning. So if you already printed them off, you can come back. They're diagrams that you also have already just loaded onto D2L, but I actually put them where they belonged within the presentation so they maybe would make a little more sense, I hope. Okay, variation in milk lipid material and their functionalities. So what creates differences? Genetics. The genetic coding. In general, we think about bovine milk as having a certain fatty acid profile. But we would find that if we were to look specifically Brown Swiss to Ayrshire to Guernsey to Jersey to Holstein, there is a more nuanced pattern within each of those breeds based on genetics. We go outside of cows to sheep, to goats, to camels, to horses, we're going to find fatty acid variation based on the genetics of that animal. Okay, so clearly what you are choosing for your livestock to milk will have potentially an impact on flavor, texture, body of your finished product strictly because the genetics of that animal will adjust the fatty acid profile. Season of year, we're in prime time for a lactating animal. This is about perfect weather. Not too hot not too cold. So that cow or that goat or that sheep in their diet can maximize their energy for themselves and they're probably going to have surplus. Surplus energy is going to lead to more fat secreted in the milk. We're in the middle of the summer Livestock's a little less likely to go eat a large amount. They're under some heat stress. They maybe aren't drinking as much as they should. We're gonna see a variation in production and a variation in fat level. In the middle of January in Minnesota, the cows are cold, just like we are. They're using all the energy they're intaking to keep their own functions going. They're not putting extra into the milk. 
So there's clearly seasonal variation. If you happen to live at a place where the seasons basically don't exist, where it's between 20 and 25 degrees C all year, and there are places like that, you're probably not gonna see a huge amount of seasonal variation. But when you're up where we are, and the seasons truly do vary, you're going to see differences in lipid content in our product, our raw material, because the season has impacted it. Stage of lactation, are we at the beginning of the lactation curve? Are we in the middle? Are we trailing off? That's going to have an impact. The body score, I mean, if the cow's going into their lactation cycle with a good body condition score, she's going to be able to handle the whole lactation and maybe not have too much impact on herself. But if she's not in a good body condition score, if she's having to deal with the weather such that she's using up her body fat faster, of course, the later in lactation, the less reserve she's gonna have, we're going to see some changes in especially short chain saturated fatty acids produced in milk. It's not the same all year. It's not the same from beginning to end of lactation. There are ups and downs along the way. And it's not even uniform as far as the changes in short chain, medium chain, and long chain fatty acids on the lactation cycle. They're going to have some curves that stay relatively flat, some that go up and change, some that are gonna come down and change. What we can say clearly is there is a variation in fat or in saturated fatty acid content based on energy balance available and body fat, body condition of the animal in that lactation cycle. Ruminant to non-ruminant, well, We've already talked about that some. Those rumen microflora give us opportunities to utilize certain feedstuffs that cannot be used by non-ruminants. And because of those opportunities, it changes the building blocks available to build and create the fatty acid profile in that product that we're obtaining. So there is going to be a variant that, of course, also can be tied to genetics, of course, right? Probably most consistently, ration. I think most of you probably have taken intro to dairy science. If not having that as your only introduction to nutrition, some of you, if you're Double majors have had other introductions to livestock nutrition. The ration has huge impacts. The quality of the forage. If we're feeding ditch hay versus first cutting alfalfa, we're going to get differences 
in fatty acid profiles, in total fat, in changes in body fat, body condition scores in our animals. The diet has a huge impact. If we feed more unsaturated fats within that diet, if we're doing an oil supplement on top to try and bump the total energy in the ration up, especially for high producing cows, we're going to see potentially a difference in the fat composition from that animal. Is that making sense? Okay. So there's lots of factors possible that can create variations in lipid content. From my standpoint, as a processor of dairy products, I know that this exists, but I tend to forget about it. What I'm usually more concerned with is how the total quantity of fat I have is gonna behave in a product. But I need to remember that if I have the same window, if I have 18% fat allowable in a sour cream, and I still want to change the textural characteristics beyond just having the total amount of fat, I need to remember where can I go to start looking for some other options. Do I look to having specific breeds? Do I look to having some control of the ration being fed so I can control the product? That's a possibility. New Zealand has a certain advantage perhaps in this in that generally their cows are more or less synchronous. They almost all freshen within the same two to three week period. Their lactation cycle follows and they almost all dry off. So they've got very distinct lactational differences. They can make different products at different times a year very comfortably because they know what rations uniformly are being available and the stage of lactation is almost constant for all of their livestock. They can have different products. When we approach it like we tend to in the United States where we try and have cows freshening and drying off all the time. Stage of lactation as a whole has much less impact. We flatten it out. Feed ration, when you start considering all of the potential sources of milk coming into your facility, it starts to flatten it out. But it's something to remember if you're going to start troubleshooting and figuring out, well, why am I having certain things occur? Well, it might happen to the ration. Perhaps one producer has changed their ration in such a fashion they've dramatically changed their fatty acid profile. We've changed the aroma. We've changed the texture. We've changed the characteristics of our finished product and we want to figure out why. 
So we keep going back to the potential factors. That make sense? So back to that table from Friday, we had melting points. The medium melting points, fatty acids, are relatively stable throughout entire lactational cycles. Those 10, 12, 14 carbon chains, pretty stable in the quantity that are there. The short chains start out as a very large proportion of the total. 30% of all the fatty acids in week one are those C4, C6, C8s. By week eight, that has dropped off from 30% to around 18%. That's measurable. That's something we can clearly observe from week one or when the cow, the animal is just freshening to two months into the lactation cycle, we have a difference in the short chain fatty acids that are present. So what's making up that balance? We have the opposite switch in the curve. The long chain, high melting point still saturated. It's the 16s and some of the 14s. They're not going to be present very much at the beginning of the lactation cycle. But as the lactation continues on, we start to get more of those longer chain saturated fats and our milk fat becomes harder. So if the milk fat becomes harder, the mid chain didn't change, the medium melting didn't change, the short chain become less present and the long chain higher melting point becomes more present. The further we get into a lactation cycle on average, the more brittle the fat becomes, the less spreadable the fat becomes, which is going to impact things like butter production. You don't want your butter to literally crack as you're trying to spread it or when you're trying to cut through the block, but that can happen if you have very distinct synchronized lactation cycles and you have more animals further in the lactation and fewer in the beginning because you don't have those short chain fatty acids to soften it up. Or you don't have some of those very long chain unsaturated fatty acids to soften it up based on diet. But based on lactation alone, as the lactation progresses, the fat becomes more brittle. You with me yet? So if you remember your glycerol, there's three carbons. The top one, if you're gonna put it in a vertical column, is carbon number one. Middle one is carbon two, the bottom one is carbon three. That's the position if we're 
generally referring to glycerol. The top is one, the bottom is three, okay? The short chain fatty acids typically, almost universally, will attach to the bottom carbon in that glycerol. That's their most common place of attachment. They'll attach at the number three. The very long chain and the long chain unsaturated, the C18, C18-1, C18-2s, almost always will attach at carbon one. I mean, we said at the end of the last set of slides, there's 10 to the fifth possibilities, but in reality, the way the mammary gland is attaching these things as we're building it, it's much smaller, the total variation, because certain things almost universally attach at the same place. <clears throat> and those mid-chain, the 14 and 16, saturated, the very high melting point, stiff fats, almost always attach at the center point in the triglyceride. So you have a long chain, very flexible end, a very stiff center, and then a short chain that's fairly pliable. When you start lumping those together, they're gonna create certain characteristics in the fat. But individually, that's typically where you're gonna find them. I hedge a lot. I use typical a lot, because I can't say anything as an absolute. There's too many ver variations in milk to say, it's always gonna be this way. No, it's probably typically this way, but there are always options for it to have some differences. Why is that important? And that's the item that I want us to keep into consideration. The way those side chains, those, the length of those side chains attached to that backbone impacts the density of the fat and the overall size of the fat globule. If the fat globules are fairly dense and packed together, they're much more difficult for us to separate. And we do a lot of separating of the fat or the lipid phase away from the serum in dairy products to create standardized product. If we're trying to come up with reduced fat milk, and we've got a large number of very dense, tightly packed fat globules, it's going to be difficult for us to separate and accomplish that. But if we have fat globules that are less dense, more expanded, it will be easier for us to accomplish that separation. Species to species, there's huge differences in the typical distribution. If I were to go to goats, goats have a very large proportion of the C6 and C8, caprylic and caproic 
as a fatty acid side ch chain. It's part of why you have the typical aroma in goat milk. But because there's more of those very short chain fatty acids than there are of the medium and long, it creates a much more dense fat globule. The, the average size of the fat globule in goat milk is smaller than it is in bovine milk. It's much harder for us to separate and standardize goat milk. It's almost like it was already homogenized. The overall distribution of the fat globules is that much smaller. And that's all impacted by how those fatty acids attach to the glycerol backbone. Density, volatility, If the fatty acids are on either the terminal ends, they're going to be a little more volatile than if they're stuck in the center. The, the more likely something is in the center or buried underneath the surface, the less volatile it becomes, the less overall impact it might have on flavor in our product. Shorter chain fatty acids, larger number of them, without any branching of the side chains, create a fairly dense overall triglyceride, long chain unsaturateds, especially if we've got cis bonds in those unsaturateds, create a very large fat globule, not very dense, much more fragile, easy to separate, easy to pull apart. The more diverse the distribution, the wider the total melting range, and the less brittle the fat. When you think about that, in some substances in chemistry class, if you've ever tried to determine the melting point of an inorganic substance, you put it in a tube, a glass tube, capillary tube, and you heat it until you get to the temperature and within, you know, a couple tenths of a degree, it will change from a solid to a liquid. It has a very distinct, even, singular melting point. But because of the distributions in fat, fatty acids, whether they're liquid or solid at room temperature, we have a semi-solid in a product like butter. At a given temperature, it has sort of a plasticity to it. It's not fluid like an oil, and it's not absolutely solid. It's somewhere in between. You put it in a pan to start it to melt. Does it all melt exactly at the same time? Or does it melt over a range? It melts over a range. All dependent upon fatty acid distributions. Any questions? I think I've thrown enough 
general information about fatty acids at you today. I'll let you have uh, another eight minutes for your brains to reorganize that, or even, you know, 18 minutes. Okay, that's it for today. Oh, did I remember to turn off the recording?